0: Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Sabina Lada. Sabina is the founder and CEO of the Good For You cookie dough company, Dough. Dough is a food brand that is completely revolutionizing how we view traditionally sweet desserts because they're making them healthy for you with immune boosting and stress relieving ingredients like zinc, elderberry, maca, ashwagandha, and more. Made to be baked or eaten straight from the jar, their enhanced cookie dough is an absolute game changer. Because it's vegan, gluten-free, and full of healthy ingredients, you can eat as much as you want. And I definitely do. Doe has been featured in publications like Forbes, Who, What, Where, Sugar, CNBC, and more. You may have even seen her pitching Doe to the sharks on Shark Tank last Friday. But of course, Sabina had a long career in various business roles before embarking on her journey as a food entrepreneur. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Sabina Lada. Hi, Sabina. Hi, how's it going? Welcome to Fireside. This is awesome. I love it. I love this platform. Thanks. Is this your first time being on here? It is, yeah. Well, we're happy to have you. You can, you can check some shows out after. It's really fun. It's It's changing the way people do podcasting. We get to ask questions and it's super exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. Well, we like to start every show with a fun question before we get into it all about your 20s. So what is something new that you learned this past week? It could be a new business you're excited about, an interesting fact you learned, maybe from a book you're reading, maybe it's a conversation you had, maybe it's something related to Shark Tank, because obviously we know you were just <laughs> on last week, but something new that you learned in the past week. Well, I guess it's a piece of education
1: that we we provided from Doe, um, so I don't know if you've been on our Instagram lately, but we like to um, educate the consumer on all things, you know, healthy and good for you and functional. And so the one thing I think I learned over the past week, especially after airing on Shark Tank, is a lot of people's definition of healthy doesn't align. And, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I'm a millennial. So we were brought up kind of on the the low-fat, low-calorie you know, diet culture, I would say. And I think that is something I thought was in the past. And I thought, uh, you know, generally people roll foods is, is better for you than counting calories. But you know, after you, if you saw the episode, you, you kind of saw the comment that was made on calories. And then we did kind of a little education post yesterday on Instagram. And there was a ton of reception, especially from women. And, and the post itself um, is essentially talking about how calories is not um, is not a healthy way of, of looking at food and so you know the education piece I think helps a lot of people but it also aligns people that though people have different versions of healthy and people do what works for them for us counting calories is harmful and we, we kind of don't believe in that so um, I think it was it was a good conversation to have at least after the show
0: yeah it's such a great point it's tricky when everyone like you said has a different definition of healthy and I feel like a show like Shark Tank, you're reaching everyone from all walks of life all across America. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe it is a good reminder that not everyone sees health the way that you do. And it's a cool education moment, you know, because, you know, from my understanding, you guys are in Erewhon, you guys are in some of these more like high end, big city places where people maybe are a little bit more health conscious. I think that's maybe Mm -hmm. the stereotype. And so it's interesting to hear you say that because it just makes me think like, wow, what a cool opportunity to have that shared on live TV. And then you know, you guys can kind of fight back and be like, hey, actually, we view it a little differently and educate people who maybe otherwise wouldn't know that.
1: Yeah, no, totally. It's um,
0: it, it is a nice way. It's kind of interesting
1: what you do after a national TV appearance, because you can there are different ways you can kind of take it. But I think we're we're taking taking the route of, you know, taking what was said and and places where, like you had said, there's an opportunity to educate and kind of using it with our content.
0: Yeah and it's nice too I think because you guys have a very like casual humorous platform from what I can tell. Yeah. It gives you that space, it's very right? Witty. Yeah, it's super witty. It's funny. And like I think you're also well positioned to do that because I think there's a lot of brands that their tone might just be like shut up and take it instead of yeah, maybe like push back a little and say your perspective, which is kind of cool.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think early in my career, that's kind of the trouble you get into when either probably your brand gets too big or you work for a bigger brand. So earlier in my career, when I was at Pepsi um, and I was specifically at Frito-Lay on the Lay's brand, Lay's is a huge brand, right? Like it's a $3 billion brand and you can't afford to polarize anyone or, you know, you'll, you'll get a sales hit and you'll be in the media and Pepsi doesn't want you in the media. And so It's interesting because you can take those risks to, I think, more as a a smaller brand um, versus, you know, at at Pepsi, our social posts would have to go through three rounds of legal (laughs) and like get PR's blessing. And then we were allowed to post them on social media. So um, it does help that we have
0: no red tape. (laughs) Totally. And your personality can come through, too. Like, yeah, I've always thought it's cool that I feel like a lot of startups, often the voice of the brand is the voice of the founder. Yep. And I feel like I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, but I would assume in everyday life, you're probably witty yourself. You're yeah. probably <laughs> kind of funny. And um, that, that can be cool to see like the founder's voice shine through where, you know, no one knows who, you know, the PepsiCo CEO or original founder from forever ago, what they're like because yeah. it's gotten, you know, so corporate. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a fun fact. Everyone go check out that post so we can all educate ourselves on calories. So we're going to start at the very beginning Obviously, we're going to talk mostly about your twenties, but I do think it's important to have context about your childhood, and mm-hmm. I have a few questions about that. But when you were younger, specifically, what did you dream of being when you grew up? So I always wanted to be in fashion, and it's kind of funny how how it's
1: come out in dough a little bit, even though you would think like, what the hell does a cookie dough brand have to do with fashion? Um, but I used to have like these little sketchbooks when I was like super young. And I would sketch, um, I would sketch so my, my parents are Pakistani and Indian. So I would sketch not only American clothes, but I would sketch these like fusion Indian clothes, which was really fun when I was a kid because you could actually get that stuff made when you would go to India and Pakistan. And it would it would be super economical to actually like get it made while you were there. Um but I truly thought like the reason I chose supply chain management as a major, which sounds like a boring AF major, <laughs> like who Who chooses that is because I, you know, did a ton of research and figured out that that major actually sets you up really nicely for the buyer position in fashion. And so I, you know, my parents are immigrants, so I don't think... Being in fashion was their number one. <laughs> their, I don't think that they were like dying for me to do that as a as a career. But I was kind of trying to figure out how to get at it from a, a, a business lens. Um, and quite frankly, I don't know that I'm, you know, create that creative, like creative enough to be a designer or anything like that. But I was like, I want to be involved in it somehow. So let me figure out how to, you know, do it just through business. And I ended up not going that route, but it is kind of funny how, how there are elements of dough. I mean, like down to even the influencers that we work with, you know, like we have gifted to Leandra Cohen. She's a friend of the brand from Man Repeller. And then Laura Kim, like there, we just are kind of intertwined with that world, which is really fun because we, you know, we obsess over it. So um, everyone on the team just weirdly has this like affinity towards fashion. So that's, that's kind of our
0: dream collab. That's so interesting. Yeah. I guess it can also make its appearance in like your your packaging and stuff. Like, you know, really like strategically coordinated, like colors and like shapes and like some of the fundamentals of fashion, you know, there actually is like in food and business, like there is some bits of that, you know, that you're not selling clothes, but you are selling something that needs to be eye-catching. It needs to match. It needs to also stand out. It needs to also be unique. Like, I feel like some of the hallmarks of what makes like a good fashion brand or like, you know, great clothes is some of the things that you probably have to think about with your packaging.
1: Yeah, almost like the design or like the ability to put something together aesthetically, like it's the same kind of like, so my husband and I bought a house right before COVID. And when we were, well, I didn't let him do any of the interior decorating. Let's be real. Oh, um, that was awful. I, I, he like tried to help initially and I was like, no, no, let's, let's leave that to me. Um, but like putting things together and like aesthetically, like making something aesthetically pleasing, it also kind of like is in the interior design realm. So I don't know. I feel like if you have a knack for that, like to what you were saying, like it it comes out in other elements of design too.
0: Totally. Yeah. Creativity shows up in a lot of different ways. It can show up in building a business. It can show up in interior design. I will say I personally do not have that skill. I'm very lucky my sister does. So she is just like how you were with your husband. Like, I will take it from here. So I definitely admire people who do have that eye. Okay, awesome. So you thought you were going to go into fashion, but then you made kind of the logical choice. If I'm going to go into fashion, I should be more on the business side and do supply chain. So I know you ended up going to UT Austin. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you decided to go to UT Austin in the first place? And did you know going in that you were going to do business and supply chain? Or was that a decision you made at school?
1: Yeah, it's funny because you're forced to make these decisions at such a young age, right? Like at at 17, when you're applying, I think 16 even if you're a younger junior. When you're applying to college, they ask you, you know, what major you want to, be. and like they, your essay questions are what you want to be, and it's kind of crazy because you don't know at that time. So I feel like you kind of make it up, or I mean, there are people who are obviously super passionate at a young age about you know something specific, like. You know my friend who had been in orchestra her whole life and like knew she wanted to be in music and that was all she was gonna do. But for a lot of us, it's kind of like, okay, I guess I'll just like choose this major like, comms or psychology or you know business, and it's it's kind of a guess. But um, the reason I chose UT is because I, I got a full ride, to be honest. So there was I was choosing between USC actually, which is funny because now I live in SoCal, but um, and my heart is totally here in LA, but. UT gave me a full ride and, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot. So I, I grew up kind of like lower middle class um, and my parents couldn't afford, I, I'm one of three. So my parents couldn't afford to kind of help me through college. So I, I had to either pay for it on my own, which I did actually end up working throughout college a bit, but, or, you know, get a scholarship. And so UT gave me that scholarship and the business program was quite good there, but it, but I didn't know that I wanted to do business. So I had, I think on my list I had, because you had to choose three, was social work, the social working school, business, which is Macombs, And then the third was engineering, which what was I thinking? <laughs> Like I would never. I do not belong. I hate rules. I literally like my favorite thing to do is break rules. Like my team will tell you that at Doe, and so like engineering is all rules and like figuring that you know. And so it's it'd be like as if I you know if I went to law school, like that's just totally not me um, at my core. And so those were the three, and then I ended up you know getting into the business school, which is which is you know a harder school to get into at UT. So I ended up choosing that, but I don't think I knew that business was right for me until like a few years into my career where I was like, oh, okay, like I'm good at this and I really like it.
0: Totally. That's so funny that you say that, that you, um, yeah, you had no clue. I think that also further proves that people don't know what they're picking because you put engineering on your list. Like that's, that's so random, but it's a smart choice. And I think business is a smart choice. And when you come from a family where maybe you didn't have as much, you come from an immigrant family, you think like, what are the logical choices here, right? It's like business, it's medicine, it's engineering, it's law even if it doesn't speak to who you are.
1: Yeah, which is why a lot of, I think, like in, in the Indian culture, you'll see too, right? Like there are a lot of doctors and there are a lot of, you know, like med school is prestigious and, you know, I have a lot of friends who went that route and like that is, you you, you kind of have, especially if your parents don't have that education, they love to kind of make sure you have it, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will say I am a Trojan, so. Oh, <laughs> USC is the best place ever so I'm glad you love UT but I I have to just do my little throw out there for USC it was really awesome and uh, but it's so cool that you got a full ride and and that makes a bunch of sense so you talked about how you worked throughout college um, because you obviously had to pay for it and I'm sure pay for your life could you tell me a little bit more about some of the jobs you had in college and if they helped inform that big job you got right after you graduated
1: Yeah. So I, my first internship was after my sophomore year and it was, it's kind of funny because like you try to figure out, you're, you're so busy trying to figure out what you want to do, but an internship is such a great way to figure out what you don't want to do too. And my internship was at a company called Lockheed Martin, which in, in their missiles and fire control department, so it's a defense company, just to you know, just to level the playing field, and um, it was fully in supply chain management, and I was working on um, the Apache helicopter was my project for the summer, so it is so wildly different than what I'm doing now, but that internship, and by the way, I was like it was in Florida, in Orlando, Florida. And I was, um, I just distinctly remember walking into the plant and you had to, they sent me an email like a month before I started. And they were like, hey, by the way, you need to buy like steel, steel toed boots. And like, you'll need to be wearing like this type of outfit all the time. Like you need to like cover your, like basically for safety reasons for the plant. And so I was like, oh shit, like what am I getting myself into? And then I distinctly remember like walking into the plant. And luckily I didn't have to be down there, there like, too much, but because it's just not my vibe. But when I walked into the plant, I was like the only woman. And not only was I the only woman, I was the only person of color (laughs) in the entire, like on the entire floor. And so that was kind of like a crazy experience where I was like, whoa, like I've never, and I came from like a pretty diverse town. And, you know, obviously like women in business now is, is much more common, but yeah, back then I was like, this like, 20-year-old, just a deer in headlights. But that allowed me to understand what I didn't want to do and I did not want to do that. And so that, I think it gave me a good, you know, resume builder and it taught me a lot when it comes to just like working life. Like I think there's a lot you learn about how to report up to someone and like how to manage a bunch of moving parts and like just the basics of, you know, how to work in a corporate culture. But it definitely also taught me that that's not my vibe.
0: (laughs) A hundred percent. I can imagine the fashionista in you too was like, are you really telling me I have to wear these like steel boots? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like these high-waisted pencil skirts. And I was like, what am I doing wearing this? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's brutal.
0: Well, that actually brings up a great point. Like, you know, going to some of these bigger name companies as an internship to see if you want to go that route. Is that something that you would recommend for people who are in business? I mean, I think. One of the things that I hear all the time is like, I'm so young, I don't have credibility, I need to build my resume. And often that does come from the names that everyone knows, like the Lockheed Martins, like the Disneys, like the Googles, like the, the names we all know. And do you feel like that was really important for you and like setting you up? Because you could have that on your resume and anyone knows what Lockheed Martin is you know, for the most part in business. So is that something that you feel like is really important separate from the job description you were obviously doing supply chain, but like the name of the company?
1: Yeah. I mean, it does help, right? Like it totally helps when I'm, when I can rattle off, like even on my Shark Tank episode, like I, they didn't actually uh, say Pepsi because there's they just like, I think cut that part out, but, but being able to say Pepsi and have someone be like, Oh wow, like that's a great brand. Or like despite what you think about soda, right? Like I'm I also don't drink Pepsi, but like it's it's a good brand and it's a great learning ground. Or um you know, even McKinsey and Consulting, which isn't very consumer fo- focused because I don't I don't think like a normal person on the street would know what McKinsey is, but if you're in business, you would know that McKinsey is, you know, one of the top three consulting firms in the world. And so like that does help in getting One, getting the next thing. Um, And then two, I would say, you know, like the classically, being classically trained. Like when I was at Pepsi, I truly learned the gold standard of brand management, of like how to, you know, create brand values, how, how to, you know, create a brand mission, how to execute on that. And I I will say like, even though I I don't belong in big company, I'm so like forever now I'm a startup person. I think that really did ground me and teach me kind of the fundamentals. But I will say there's a way to do it now where you don't have to go that big, one. And then two, you don't have to kind of succumb to like being one of, you know, a 50,000 person organization. And I think like not to say, you know, you you can find does of the world um, so easily, but like we have an intern um, that we're working with. Her name's Danny from, from UPenn and she's kind of in an interesting place. I think like I I would kill to have her role um, or like have had her role back in the day because Doe is an emerging brand and it's getting the brand recognition. And we are at this inflection point where like people are starting to understand what it is, especially, Millennials and Gen Z, you know, Gen Z females, but also we are a team of five, uh, and Danny's number six, and so she gets the small, you know, the small company feel, where she might get way more responsibility than she would at a PepsiCo or you know at a Lockheed Martin, but she's working within a team of experienced people. Of you know, she's working for Patrick, who's my head of marketing, who came from. Apple and Toyota, but also, you know, was working at a couple different startups. And so she gets kind of that like best of both worlds, like classical training, but also gets to work for a startup. So I do recommend, you know, whether it's like a medium to large startup, like the Away suitcases of the world um, or like the Glossier, which are now much bigger or, you know, emerging startups, I feel like brand names, especially in the consumer space, if you want to be in CPG or if you want to be in food and beverage are, are helpful.
0: That's such a great point and that there are larger startups that you can work with. They don't need to be these like established brands. And like you said, if you can find a dough or you can find like an up and coming one that you really believe in, that's a smart move. Like that intern you were talking about. So thank you for that advice. I think that's, that's super valuable. And I want to talk a little bit more about your time at PepsiCo. So you graduate from UT, you get your major in supply chain, and then, you know, you get your first big job as a marketing analyst at PepsiCo can you tell me a little bit about how you secured that job and then what was your thought process in deciding to go there? I mean, like you said, you're you know, you're not such a soda person, but it's obviously such a recognizable, amazing brand, I'm sure. Lots of supply chain to learn from. Can you tell me a little bit more about that decision? Yeah, so that so I interned for Pepsi, and it was interesting because
1: that was my first foray into marketing um, or brand. We called it brand management at Pepsi because it's it's a little bit broader than marketing. But it was kind of like my first minor pivot. Like I was still doing something in business, but it wasn't supply chain or operations. It was marketing, which is much more my speed. Um, and it was a test too. That summer, my junior year, I was testing to see if I, um, if I liked marketing. Um, and then obviously consumer products is a is an amazing place to be if you are a marketer. But I actually like, I don't drink Pepsi now, but I like grew up on this stuff. Like I, you know, my dad, uh, I little, talked a little about this on Shark Tank, but my dad, um, you know, owned a gas station and I was there on the weekends and I would eat, you know, like Oreos for breakfast, legit, and like craft mac and cheese in the microwave. Like That kind of like classic food or packaged food really is what I grew up on. And so those brands – and they still are like really iconic, right? Like Oreo, for example, is such an iconic brand and has has that staying power. But I – thought it would like to your point about having brands on your resume I also from a consumer perspective was like how cool would it be to work for you know one of these big brands and so that's kind of what what led me to PepsiCo um, and specifically Frito-Lay Frito-Lay is in in Dallas actually and I will say like that first summer was really hard like you have to work your ass off. And the culture is very, like I would say it's maybe a little more balanced than startup life, but it's still, it's still like a very hardworking culture and things move super fast. And I think that pace, even though it was stressful for the first summer that I did it, it it was it like aligned with my pace. Like my pace is super fast paced, just generally. And I like that. And I don't necessarily like a nine to five. And you know, sometimes I had to work until midnight, but it, I liked what I was doing and you you kind of it's almost a little bit of a gut feel, right? Like, okay, am I good at this? Yes, check. Do I like what I'm doing? Yes, check. And then will this help me in the future? Like, yes, check. That it kind of like checked subconsciously. I didn't know all this at the time. I just vision <laughs> off of like, you know, like if I if I liked it and I was good at it. But yeah, I think like now looking back on it, that's that's probably why I chose it. But it it is, it's a, it's a brand that everybody knows and that, you know, my parents knew and my sisters knew. And so it was for me like almost like close to
0: home. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that you also took a risk on marketing that you maybe hadn't done as much before you did supply chain and operations and you liked it, which is really yeah. interesting. And that's so rare for your first job out of college to be there and feel like this pace aligns with my personality. This marketing thing is me having that alignment, which is really interesting. I have a question. If, if you could name like a couple characteristics that you think make a good marketer, or if there is like a 20 something that is thinking, Hey, I think I might like that. What, what advice would you have for them? Or what traits would you say that they should possess to follow that route? Yeah, I think so. There's
1: kind of this innate, Gut that you, I call it like the consumer gut, and it's it's almost like this intuition, and you could kind of ladder it back up to psychology. I think like like almost this entire function that consumer companies have, and it's called consumer insights, or you can call it like consumer psychology, or whatever it is. But it's literally like what moves people and what makes people want to do what they're doing, and it's hard to teach. Like, I I think you can refine your consumer gut over time and kind of learn what makes people tick and why people act the way they do and why people might buy something or why a brand might make someone feel the way that they feel. But it's, if you don't have it at all, it is very difficult to teach that. And so, I think like you can kind of note, you, you can notice it, it, it comes out in people's work and it's, it's hard to almost like grasp early on. But I think if you, if you have this almost consumer intuition, you'll know when you're working on something and that truly is what makes a good marketer. Because what you're trying to do at the core of marketing is, and you know, this sounds a little sleazy, but like you're trying to make money right? Like you are at the end of the day, like you are trying to make like that is marketing is a revenue generating role at a business. But underneath all of that, how that happens, like, yes, that's your financial goal. But all of the soft goals that come along with that is how to make people feel something. And you have to be really in touch with like consumers and you know, psychology and just how to communicate with people and have a super high EQ. So I think that, you know, it is kind of like the fundamental of what you need to have.
0: Does that explain it well? That's perfect. Yeah. No, I think that makes a bunch of sense. And I think people kind of know if they get it or if they don't in their gut, like when they see a brand doing something that feels off, they'll know when they're in their yeah. work, they'll know the high EQ piece, the psychology piece. I think that all makes a bunch of sense. And I think like naming, You know, what each of these different fields are within a business and like what it takes to make it in each of these fields from someone like you, I think can be really helpful for people who are maybe stuck between marketing, operations, and supply chain and, Mm -hmm. you know, want to decide. So you're at PepsiCo and you're there for a couple years and you're, you know, doing marketing, you're really liking the culture, you're in a fast paced environment, but then you decide to make a pivot and go work as an associate brand manager at Diamond Foods. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you made that pivot and then what exactly an associate brand manager is? Yeah, so it's actually, interestingly enough, the same career
1: path. So in big CPG, you start as a a marketing analyst and then you kind of graduate to um, a brand manager and then you graduate to a director, senior director, VP, and then at the very top, you have the CMO. So it's very, I mean, sometimes you at different sizes of organizations, you might kill some of those intermediate areas. But for the most part, it's like a a pretty standard path in in CPG. So essentially, I I went to Diamond because I had an old, or I had a boss at Frito-Lay that left. And he, Diamond is a much smaller company than, um, and it was actually acquired, so it no longer exists. It's now part of Campbell Soup. But it, at the time, much smaller company than Frito-Lay and PepsiCo. And so you, when you go to a smaller company, you tend to get a title that's higher than you would be able to get at the bigger company, if that makes sense. And so he basically was like, you know, and, and the path at the time, no longer, I think, but at the time, the path was you have to get your MBA in order to get to that role, to get to the associate band manager role. No analyst would be able to be promoted to that, which I actually fought super hard for when I was at Frito-Lay. And I think they changed it right after I left. But you know, you wouldn't be able to, to graduate to that role or get promoted unless you went to business school. And it's kind of funny because like, if you are a business undergrad, like I had a business undergrad, did I need to go to business school? Like, mm, Probably not, right? Like I, I learned the fundamentals, like maybe for the network or for, for the brand name, but I learned accounting, finance, like supply chain, marketing. I learned all of those things or those like hard skills in my undergrad. So my old boss, Burke, he actually plucked me from to lay and said, you know, you'll be, you'll get to skip the line. You won't have to go to business school and I'll make you an associate brand manager at Diamond Foods. Um, so you'll get to manage, essentially, be the P&L um, holder of an entire brand. So that brand was Pop Secret Popcorn. And it's a huge brand. I mean, it's a $250 million brand. And he said, you you will basically get to manage this brand without having to to take that step and go to school. So it was – it's kind of funny, like, you – try to find opportunities to cut the line if you can but then you also realize quickly like if you're in over your head or not i was definitely in over my head my first like my first year there but that's how i learned super super fast and so yeah it was it was an opportunity to to get in front and and honestly not have to go into $200,000 of debt in business school
0: that's incredible and i think what's also so remarkable about that is that you had already someone in your corner that plucked yeah. you at the age of 24. I mean, I think that that's really rare to have your talents shine at such a young age that someone wants to take you from another company. I mean, typically you're in your twenties, you're often begging companies to hire you. Mm -hmm. Um, and you were able to secure that. Can you tell me a little bit more about like, what's your recommendation for people who maybe want to find that person or two that, can mentor them. I know I know the word mentor is super overused, but yeah. this idea no, that like there's it, right? Like this idea that there's someone who can see your talent and how do you find those people? Was that like can you tell me a little bit more about that relationship you had with Burke and how you fostered that and he saw that? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with
1: like I know mentor is an overused word. I to- I totally like agree with you, but I'm kind of obsessed with like that type of relationship and the reason is because Like when I was building Doe and like even now, the reason there are so many people in my corner and the reason like I was able to raise a million dollars in a week and, you know, the reason I was able to get into retailers so quickly is because of my mentors. And those are the people that, you know, I I don't even know that they're mentors. They're almost like sponsors. Like there's kind of an interesting Nuance and i I might be getting it wrong, but there there's an interesting nuance between the two. A mentor is someone that might be like an advisor, and you know they're kind of like I would say the like a lower tier of like an advisor they might listen to you, they might help you, they might like look over your resume, they might you know give you advice like that is is what I would consider a mentor. A sponsor is someone who will move mountains for you, and that is an interesting difference because. I do have a couple of mentors, but more of my relationships in my career have been with sponsors of someone who believes in you so deeply that they will literally like get a job for you or they will literally, you know, like call a retailer for you and be like, hey, there's this amazing product. Can I send it to you? You know what, like a friend of mine or whatever, an old colleague of mine just launched it. And that like putting your name on someone is a really big deal. So I, I think it's one of those like, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. But like when you feel that connection to someone that may be one, two, three titles, your senior, like Burke happened to be my immediate boss, but I have another mentor, um, Arun, who was probably, he, he was at McKinsey, he was probably like four or five titles above me, but we just had a connection. And I was like, like yeah, you get me and you, you, you think I do really good work and you think I'm talented. I I tend to like foster those pretty quickly on, like pretty early on. And I'll, you know, whether it's like making sure you reach out to them, you know, every month or every couple months for a coffee or a chat, or just like shooting them a text about like what you're up to and what's coming out. Like Arun, for example, I sent him a text, um, when we were airing on Shark Tank and I was like, hey, just have and he knows I started though, but I was like, FYI, like I'm airing, like watch me. So like he, he still has that connection. So I think just making sure you're able to identify it when it does happen of like, okay, like I, I think I could like build a relationship with this person and not, not in a way that's almost um, like there's a sleazy way to do it, right? Of like, oh, like I, you know, I'm trying to take advantage of this situation and like I, I should be reaching out to them because I have to. It's almost like more organic. And then, you know, you kind of foster that relationship. And with, if they think you do great work, then that's obviously the number one thing um, because then they'll really move mountains for you.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. You have to be authentic about it because people see through that so, so, so quickly. Yeah. Like you, you have to be really mindful. Do you think that what has made, and then I'll just say too, you know, from your Shark Tank episode, people were quick to say like, I believe in you Mm -hmm. and you had, you weren't even working with them yet. They hadn't even seen you in a corporate setting. I mean, and obviously some of these people you've mentioned have seen you in a corporate setting and have seen you work hard. So maybe that was, you know, your talent and your hard work is what they saw what do you think it is that gets people to believe in other people when they're young? And, you know, maybe it's different by person. Maybe it's just being authentic to who you are. Maybe it's working your butt off. Maybe it's being super passionate, but like, do you have a gut feeling on like what you think is the secret sauce to getting someone to see you and believe in you and want to be your sponsor? Yeah. I mean, the hard work thing is an interesting conversation because I think there's like two ends
1: of the spectrum, right? There's, we got into this phase a little bit, you know, a, few years ago, um, that was like balance culture. And it was, we, everybody was talking about like work-life balance and like shutting your computer off at 5 PM. And like, there are plenty of people, I mean, my sister, for example, totally subscribes to that, but, I personally do not subscribe to that and it's because I get so passionate about what I'm working on. To me, it's not a nine to five thing. To me, if an idea comes to me at 11 p.m., like I'm going to do something with it because I'm that excited about it. And so there's that, that, that kind of culture, right? And then the other end of it is hustle culture, which I also don't subscribe to. Like hustle culture is very much burnout it's a lot of you know working for the sake of working it's talking about how busy you are all the time um and i don't think that's productive either because i had to do that call it i mean i was in that place in july when i was filming shark tank and i was doing targets accelerator at the same time like i was burnt out and my body was like shutting down so i don't i also don't subscribe to that i think the, in the middle for me, at least when you can tell someone is a really hard worker and that is, you know, whether that you're 22 and it's your first job and you're an assistant and you're getting coffee for someone, or if you're, you know, the CEO of a company and there's a fire drill on a Saturday and you make sure like you're in the trenches with the team getting that shit done. I think it, it kind of comes out in different ways, but you can kind of see that in people, right? Like whether it's in an interview or with the sharks, for example, I actually like they show six minutes of it, but you actually have a much longer conversation with them. So like it kind of comes out of someone who like knows their shit and works their ass off. Um, and I think the combination of those two things um, is, is really special if you can kind of identify it.
0: Super powerful. Thanks for sharing that. I think that that's really valuable advice. And coming from someone like you, I know people will definitely take that to heart. Okay, so I want to keep moving through your 20s, because I know we don't have too much time left. I could keep talking to you about all your <laughs> thoughts on this forever. But I want to be mindful of your time and also the timeline of your 20s. So you're at as an associate brand manager at Diamond Foods. And then a couple years later, you move to McKinsey, which you mentioned, you know, maybe not everyone on the street knows that. But in business, it's obviously a one of the top consulting firms what made you decide to go from a cpg company to consulting and i think one thing that i find interesting too is for someone who was maybe starting to figure out you were entrepreneurial and like liked to work hard and like to build brands i think of consulting as like a little bit more like you're hopping around to a lot of different brands versus like being super passionate about just one so i'm really curious to hear like why you decided to go that route and how you got that opportunity yeah, it's, it's
1: funny because McKinsey is um, – I, I joke that I got my MBA at McKinsey because you really do get to learn so much in a very condensed period of time. So the reason I went there was actually because I essentially had a panic attack at, um, at Diamond, and I was like, holy shit, I'm going to be in CPG, in food, my entire career, and I literally haven't experienced anything else. And, like, that gave me a ton of anxiety because you can see – the path, literally, like I, I I outlined it earlier, the path's the CMO. And, you know, I could have gone to another CPG company and stayed in that space, which is funny because now I'm in that space now. But um, But I wanted to experience something different. Like I was like, I want to try another industry. I want to try another function. I feel like I need to, you know, quickly learn other things. And so consulting is a great way, one, if you kind of, have, um, you get tired of things easily, right? Like you can work on a project for six weeks. You can work on a project for six months and then you, to your point, like kind of just switch, but it's a great way to, and I recommend it it, when you're kind of like in your earlier twenties to try a bunch of different things to figure out what you like and don't like, because again, like Figuring out what you like is important, but what you don't like, and there was a lot of like, oh, wow, I don't like this. And you don't have to stay on the project that long, right? Like you, if I don't like it, and I could be like, okay, this is just a 12 week project, it'll be over soon, and I can do something else. So it's a nice way to kind of like round yourself out and see different companies, see different cultures, see different functions. And while you have the stamina to travel all over when you're in your 20s, I don't know that I could do that now. But I feel like in my 20s, I was I was fine getting on a plane on Monday and then coming back on Thursday. Um, and it was actually fun to like be in different cities um, every single week. So I, I highly recommend it to just kind of figure out, just hop around and like figure out what you want to do, because it's not always that like straight path, right? I think in your 20s, you kind of get scared that you have to stay on this one path and and figure it out. It's kind of more of a winding road. So McKinsey definitely provides that.
0: Yeah, and that's such a great point. And you know, it you might go there and then reaffirm that you do like CPG, which is what you did. Yes. You were <laughs> like, I'm having a breakdown because I don't know and then you got the confidence of like, Oh wait, I don't like all these other things. I wanna do more C P G stuff and that's what you've, you know, went on to continue doing. Yes. So it's almost like a it's like either opening your eyes to a new path or it's just like reaffirming you're on the right one. So mm-hmm. sounds like it was a great confidence booster. I will say I I had a very brief consulting stint and I, did, I remember I did like an oil and gas thing and I was oh, like God. <laughs> not for me at all yeah but you learn quickly and luckily like you said you can change you can stay there for only six weeks and so yeah. you have some control over that which is great so you're doing consulting you're figuring it out you're learning that you know you do like CPG and then you decide after a couple years to go be the head of a venture studio at M13 before I ask you about that, I did want to ask you just about these, like, two-year hops. Because yeah. I think that's, like, an interesting pattern. Like, almost to the date, you've spent about two it's years crazy. at each place. <laughs> yeah. And I'm yeah. sure you didn't. I mean, it's obviously, everything's hindsight. I'm sure you weren't like, oh, it's coming up. I got to go. Yeah. But what do you think about the two-year hops? And do you think that that's the right amount of time? Do you think it totally depends on the company? But we're obviously, there's so much for us to chat through in your 20s because you kept making big moves. Do you think that that was really important? Yeah, it's funny. The two-year, I actually didn't notice that um, until I
1: talked to Hillary from Who at Where that I did that. And I was like, oh, wow, I do. Just reflecting on it, that's crazy. But I think there's something about the two-year, about like one year you get, you start, you learn enough, right? And like you start to actually like become an owner and and get to know what you're doing very deeply. And then by the two-year mark, you're probably not pretty much an expert at it, but you're probably pretty good at it, especially at these bigger companies that you can kind of like coast a little bit. And I think I'm a little bit of a masochist and I don't like to coast. And I like to, in a little bit of his, I like joke that I'm masochist, but it's truly because I like to learn. Um, and so I like to put myself in these like uncomfortable situations where I learn. And I think at that two year mark at those places, I, was, I would kind of get to a point where I was like, okay, I like kind of have this figured out. Like I could keep doing this, but it, my my learning curve kind of dropped off, right? Like it's super steep early on. And then it kind of like plateaus. And right when it plateaus is where I lose interest. So that might've been a, a driving factor in kind of that two-year mark.
0: So interesting, the psychology of it and hearing you break it down like that, that makes a lot of sense. And especially when you're 20s, you, like you said, you have so much energy that you want to keep hopping. Maybe in your, you know, now that you started dough, you know, you're in your thirties, maybe you'll take three years, maybe four. We'll yeah. see how it plays out. Maybe yeah. you'll slow down a little.
1: Well, luckily, startups are so crazy that, that like I don't I still I like am not even close to plateauing learning.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the blessing, right? It never ends, especially yeah. when you're the founder. Okay, so back to the venture studio. So you decide to go from consulting to venture capital. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you decided to go that route. And maybe I'm getting the sense, correct me if I'm wrong, that at that time, maybe you had realized you were feeling really entrepreneurial. And maybe you wanted to be around startups because that's what most people who go into venture do. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about like, yeah, what that realization was at the end of your time at consulting and then why you picked venture capital versus like maybe even going to a startup?
1: Yeah. And I always, it, it's funny because I always felt entrepreneurial. And I, I say that I'm an entrepreneur or I was an entrepreneur at those bigger companies where you're not necessarily, you know, you can't be entrepreneurial because you have the safety net. But I did a lot of things at, at Pepsi and Diamond that kind of accelerated my entrepreneurial personality. Um, and so that was one thing that I hadn't yet explored. So yeah, to your point, I was feeling super entrepreneurial. I had Several conversations with people at startups, and th- that's one thing, by the way. If you a piece of advice for people in their twenties, if you reach out to people on LinkedIn, you'll be surprised at how many people respond to you, and it's it's crazy because people will do these kind of informational, especially if you don't want anything out of them. If you're like, hey, I'm just I just really want to learn, and they might not all respond to you, but a lot of people do. And so I was able to chat with a lot of people at startups in venture capital. One of my mentors at McKinsey, and I was like, look, I think like. I think I want to try this thing. Like, I think I would like this kind of early stage world. And when you're at a venture studio, it's, or a a venture capital firm, it's much less risk than if you go out and start your own thing. Right. And so I was able to, the, the opportunity there was build a venture studio or what we call a launch pad, where we launch brands from within. So there's the investment side of the house. And then there was my side of the house, which was essentially our incubator where we were in- incubating our own brands. So I got this kind of like safety net of being like having a salary one and like being a part of, and having the resources of a, a VC. But then I was able to launch brands and kind of write and learn the pr- playbook of how to launch brands from zero to one. And that's truly, I mean, what I use to launch dough. And I, I still kind of like refer to those experiences But it was a way to almost like de-risk it for me and, you know, take that leap without fully taking it and like, you know, sleeping on friends' couches and eating ramen, like that whole story. I didn't necessarily have to do that to learn that
0: world. That's so fascinating. It's almost like when you were at McKinsey, you got your MBA 1.0, which was like working with these like big corporations and seeing how that worked. And then you got like your second part of your MBA, which was like building it from zero. It was like playing at one and then playing at zero. And then that maybe also you know, I would imagine made you feel more confident, like, okay, I can take it from zero to one, because I've seen what one looks like. And now I'm seeing what zero looks like. So I kind of think I got it, you know, and it's super you're like rounding out. I mean, I'm like, I'm seeing it so clearly. Like, I mean, sometimes it you can only see it in hindsight, but like you're rounding out prep to build your own thing, because you saw a big company and you saw small ones just trying to get off the ground. Yeah, I know. That's so funny. Because you
1: don't you truly don't. You sometimes don't see oftentimes, actually, you don't see that the decision will have these kind of echo effects while you're making it. Like sometimes you're doing it based off of gut and sometimes you're doing it, you know, because you might have a little bit of a life plan. But I think these decisions, to me at the time, honestly, it felt like I was just making pivots and I would look disorganized. Like I thought my resume, I was like, shit, like my resume is gonna look so crazy. Like I went to, I was in CPG, and then I went to consulting and then I went to venture and like people are just gonna be like, this is crazy. Like why can't you stay in one one job or one function? But it it really, those experiences collectively is the reason why dough is where it is. Um, And so yeah, you, you don't see it at the time. I think you you might feel a little crazy when you do it. But then you look back and
0: you're like, oh okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's hopefully why these shows are fun, too, because, like, I get to tell back to you that it makes sense. Yeah. like, after (laughs) after you built it, I'm like, like, are we having therapy right now? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I'm like, as an outsider, I'm like, I get it. It makes perfect sense. I love it. That's awesome. So, okay, so you obviously are killing it at this venture studio, but then you decide it's time to start Doe. I know you did some consulting for a little bit as well, but ultimately the next big thing was Doe, and Mm -hmm. that's, of course, what you're doing now. It's what a lot of people, you know, here know you for, Can you just tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Doe and why you decided to start this company? What market need did you see? Yeah, so
1: uh, we are a pandemic baby. Um, So I concepted the brand in May, June of 2020. And I tested the brand in August and September of 2020. So it was a pretty fast turnaround from when I concepted it to testing it. And the reason was because I was taking – Fistfuls of supplements, so I was taking literally like elderberry, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, and it was all as COVID insurance essentially for my body. And I wanted a better way to take them. Like I, they would burn my throat. I would get heartburn. Like it was just a horrible experience. So the original concept was actually more of like an edible vitamin, um, almost like a famous Amos cookie, but with all of your vitamins in it. And it kind of I explored the cookie category, and it was wild. Like it is so saturated. There's, there's honestly, it doesn't need that much more innovation. Like there are a lot of brands doing great things around like enhanced cookies or or functional cookies. There's a lot of, you know, clean, allergen-free, vegan, gluten-free. And so I was like, okay, this market is, I I don't think I want to play in this market. And so explored the cookie dough category and kind of quickly decided there's an interesting, like, Edible cookie dough. There's not really a brand that has done it that's new age and has done it in a healthy way um, or a clean way. All, the I would say 80 to 90 percent of the the market is still Nestle and, and Pillsbury, and so that just was super interesting to me. So I was like, why is this so undisrupted? And I myself hadn't eaten cookie dough in, God, like 10, 15 years. Like our 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 consumer, the millennial and Gen Z female, probably hasn't touched Nestle Tollhouse in 10 years, and so it's kind of like an opportunity to bring people back into the category. So we tested it on Instagram in August, September, and we didn't have a website. So we literally just would do these drops on Instagram and you would have to place an order via direct message. um, And then you would have to Venmo us $20 um, to get your order and like your shipping address. And so that was an interesting way. And that truly was one of the ways that I, I kind of like learned at M13, not that exact kind of formula of launching it on DM, but how to scrappily test something. We had a little bit of budget when I was at M13, so we did a little bit differently, but it, essentially, like how to test something and, and get the proof points and the product market fit and then invest your own money in it um, or fundraise for it. So I ended up investing my own money in it in October. And I mean, I don't want to make it sound easy, but it kind of took off. And so that, there was this interesting, like, okay, the quantitative numbers are there, you know, like we were hitting crazy revenues. I was making product until three in the morning and then fulfilling it at seven in the morning. Um, So you could see that the quantitative was there, but there was also this qualitative, interesting, you know, buzz that we were creating. And, you know, whether that was on Instagram or just like in the world, like there was a lot of people talking about us in the food and beverage world and, there's, you kind of don't, you can't put a number to that, but there's that little bit of like magic that you can feel when something's working and something is right. And so that's when, it, I also, you know, couldn't keep making in my kitchen. So I had to go to <laughs> move to a co pack. Yeah. So that's when um, I fundraised for, for the business.
0: That's, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I, it's crazy when something takes off like that. And I feel like you had the context from all your past experiences to know what taking off looked like. Because I think what happens yes. too is like, you're like, okay, is, you know, let's say $50,000 in sales. Is that good? Is that not good? Is yeah. that, is this margin? You had almost like the the framework to decide good versus bad. And I think that mm-hmm. that's also so powerful because I think a lot of people, like, they may start something and be maybe a little bit delusional and be like, ah, oh, I can do this. But they don't know that those numbers don't work or they are yeah you know super jaded and they're like oh this isn't working because it's not growing fast enough but in reality like numbers look really good and this could scale so it's interesting too to hear you talk about like you also probably just knew yes i'm sure it was the magic and the quantitative stuff like you were able to say like this is what it should be and this is what it shouldn't be
1: yeah we had our goals i mean we had like i had revenue goals i had con- even like when we launched the website in october conversion rate goals i had we launched an airwan soon after and i knew but from my PepsiCo, you know, brain, like so far, so long ago, I knew what the velocities or what we call units per store per week. I knew what those should look like. And like writing those down, obviously is one thing, but also, um, you know, just intuitively like remembering and talking to people in the industry of like, what does good look like? So yeah, you, you definitely have to have a framework and almost be a little bit clinical about it, which takes a little bit of the sexiness out of it. I, I wasn't the, you know, the baker that was making a bunch of product for my friends and family. And then they were like, you should sell this. I, I'm more so, I'm a little more, I would say like methodical about it. But but either way, I think like that, that does help in kind of setting the expectations.
0: Yeah, well, it worked out being methodical because you don't want to go into <laughs> a blind. All right, well, I, yeah. I do have a question for you just about if you are entrepreneurial and in your 20s, what, like, and you want to start a business right away, what advice do you have for someone? Do you recommend that they wait and work for other companies and explore and see? Do you recommend that they just go for it and try to be smart about it? I know it's, it's often case by case, but for people who Mm. are very entrepreneurial, let's say they're, you know, 22, just out of college and they know they want to start something. They know they have so many good ideas. What is that piece of advice you have for them?
1: Yeah, I I actually don't I think everyone's a little bit different on on when it comes to when to do it. My biggest advice is have the proof points before you just like quit your job and like devote your life to something. Like to your point you know it's it varies especially early on like performance of a company and so making sure you de-risk that as much as possible and so it's easier it's easier kind of said than done but like making sure you can test it and whether that's for us that was seeing if people liked it on Instagram getting reception on the product you know selling it through a pretty low cost channel um, and ha- and having honestly, it was like an ugly packaging that we used at the beginning. Um, so it was like an MVP version of our of our product. It was not cute, but almost like creating an MVP version of whatever your product is to just get proof points. And th- that doesn't even mean like we ended up selling it, right? And that that is difficult for some. But even like getting an email wait list, like to see how many people, like how many emails you can get. And then talking to other brands who have done that to see what good looks like um, in email collection. So I think testing is really important early on. And that way, if you do one, if you're investing in yourself and you are putting your own money in it, then you'll be able to de-risk it for yourself. But then two, like it'll help you fundraise and it will help you if if you are seeking investors um, or if you want venture capital money, they no longer, I mean, unless you're a seller founder that has founded multiple businesses, they don't just give you money anymore off of a presentation or off of a deck. Like they want to see some sort of traction and some sort of proof points or like proof of concept. And so the more you can test and just show like there is demand for this and there is a market for this uh, and that's why I need your money to to build this business, that will you know work far better and far more efficiently than trying to, you know, raise money off of like, Oh, I just think I have this really good idea for a hot sauce brand, you know? Totally.
0: Yeah. I love that. So first step is like find the proof points, whether that's email, waitlist, social media, whatever that like low cost thing can be. And then the second piece is like figuring out what good is in your industry and seeing if you're meeting that, whatever that good metric is. So that's, that's super fascinating. Final question for you. And then I'm going to see, maybe we take one question from the audience So this is a question that we ask all of our guests on the show. And it is because our, you know, audience is 20-somethings. They're all trying to figure it out. And we love collecting pieces of advice from our guests. So you've obviously shared a lot throughout this conversation. But if you could share one piece of advice to every 20-something, whether they're in business, whether they're in medicine, maybe engineering at Lockheed Martin, who knows? (laughs) um, What is that one piece of advice that you would give them? Work your ass off.
1: So I I do um I do Peloton Digital. I don't know if you you know what that is, but it's um it's essentially like the Peloton Digital classes. And Jess Sims is someone that I take all the time. She's one of the best instructors. And she always says in the middle of the workout when you're tired AF, she will say how you do anything is how you do everything. And like again, I think we talked a little bit about this earlier in the conversation of like There are some people who love the nine to five and like don't want to work after 5 p.m. and want to shut their laptops. And then there are some people who like really subscribe to hustle culture and like burnout culture, which I don't agree with either. But like work really hard and and you won't it won't feel like work if you are really passionate about it and if you really like what you're doing. Right. Like I don't ever think oh, like I have, you know, all this stuff I have to do that I don't want to do. Obviously, there there's a little bit of grunt work that come with this job, but For the most part, like if you are excited and have that energy around something, it will show. And so I would say like your 20s is just a good opportunity to to just work your butt off.
0: Love that. So good. Thank you so much, Sabina. That's great advice. I'm going to open it up just for one question. We'll take a question from C. Come on up. Hi, thank you so much for your words of wisdom. It was just fabulous. I particularly love that You knew you didn't like to follow the rules. I find that fascinating. So at what age did you discover that you didn't like to follow the rules? Then with some of these corporate jobs, how did you follow the rules? And then did that play a role in kind of building your risk muscle for jumping out and doing your own thing, which it sounds like you came from modest means. So it was a big risk. So how'd you build your risk muscle? And can you talk about this inner knowledge of you don't like to follow the rules?
1: Yeah. I love that. Well, it's funny because I was a really good student. Like growing up, I was, you know, cared about grades a lot. I like, didn't really like to get in trouble that much. The one thing I got in trouble for literally all the time, it was like once a week, they would call my mom because I talked too much. Like I always got that on my, on any like write up of like, she talks too much. Um, and so that was, you know, that is what it is. But I think the first time I figured that out that I didn't like following rules was at Pepsi because I would have all of these creative ideas and we would not be able to do them because of whether it was like legal or, you know, someone higher up didn't like doing stuff like that. It was too much of a risk to do something like that for a brand or, or such a big brand. And there was one VP, actually, he ended up being the CMO and now he's number two to the CEO at Pepsi. His name is Ram Krishnan. And I loved him. He was like one of my favorite people I've ever worked for and he also didn't like following the rules so he would he would kind of like encourage me um like I, I you know at 22 when I just graduated I was doing all the social media doing the Twitter doing the Facebook as Facebook at the time was big I don't know how many brands use that anymore but I was doing all of that and I would kind of like go rogue a little bit. And he loved it. Like he would think the stuff we were posting was so funny and so witty. And sometimes we got our our wrist slaps, but by legal, um, because a lot of stuff had to go through them, but I kind of had him to encourage that rule breaking. Um, and I think like throughout, I kind of alluded to this, that I was an entrepreneur at those bigger companies, but the reason I, I would consider myself an entrepreneur is because I would do things that people, you know, kind of didn't want to touch or like didn't want to get involved with, um, and whether that was what we called fighter brands, so they were like smaller brands that PepsiCo would launch, or you know that was something called like that I created called the Millennial Minute, which um, was all about how millennials see things and, and use social media. I think those are those elements of like okay, this doesn't fit in a box, and I'm doing something outside of the box. So that that kind of allowed me to understand like okay, you like to stretch and you don't like to just do like your your job. My job description was an analyst. I was supposed to pull numbers. I was supposed to report, do the weekly report. I was supposed to like do these deep dives into insights for other people, for like my director, for my managers. But I would always find myself doing things outside of that. And I think that that kind of, you know, has
0: that same tone. That's so funny. Like, you were stretching your job description. Yeah, and you knew really. that, that meant you didn't like the rules. Yeah, that's hilarious. I will say I am also a fellow detention talker. Um, I that was the one main thing I got a lot of trouble in a lot of strong women are. <laughs> yeah, you know what, whatever, like it's really served me well in life. And it is what it is. But when you said that I was laughing, because I, I definitely um, I can definitely relate. Well, thank you so much, Sabina. This has been such an awesome conversation. And can you please let everyone know where they can follow you on social media, where they can find dough to buy for themselves, obviously. And then I know you guys have just launched your holiday boxes. Yeah. Can you tell everyone what that is and where they can get themselves some? Yeah, so dough is
1: at eat, E-A-T-D-E-U-X. And then I'm at Sabina, S-A-B-E-E-N-A, Lada, L-A-D-H-A. On Instagram and dough is also starting to pop off on TikTok. We're working on it. It's also at Eat D-E-U-X. And then yeah, we just launched our holiday boxes. We've got two holiday flavors, pumpkin spice and sugar and spice, which are to die- actually three gingerbread, which all of those are to die for. They're they're almost they're like these spiced um, nutmeg and cinnamon type cookie doughs. Um, you can eat them raw. I like them baked because they're like warm. I put them in the air fryer. You can like toast the top. And then essentially the inside is like this gooey soft dough. It's so good. And yeah, you can find everything at eatdough.com, E-A-T-D-E-U-X.com. Or we're in airwan stores in LA. We're in Foxtrot stores in Chicago, Dallas, and DC. And then we're in a bunch of New York stores. So you can just go to our store locator, Westside Markets, Union Markets, a bunch of those
0: amazing love a store locator helps to really narrow it down (laughs) i will say i think i maybe you guys have already done this but i think you need like an eat baked or like eat raw like sort of competition because i i hear you on the baked but like i think the raw is the way to go so really and i'll die on this like i really feel that very strongly about that so maybe you guys can sell that merch because i feel like people can really stand behind their side
1: yeah oh well you'll like our merch that's coming out in a couple weeks in like a week
0: (laughs) okay i will keep my eyes peeled Awesome. Well, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, please give us a follow here on Fireside and over at Dear20something on Instagram and subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sabina. Thanks, Erica. You're the best. Bye. Bye.